Jesus continues in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard it said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. You must not pledge by the earth because it's God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Everything more than this comes from the, holy, from the evil one. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when we open up to the Gospels after being in the Old Testament for literally the last eight months, it's sort of like an entirely new world dawns upon us, like a whole new scene is set. It's almost like in some ways we're reading an entirely different book. But Jesus opens up this section of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and in a sense ensures us that it's not all that different. This is going to be in the same tradition and vein of what has come before. He opened this section today and said, don't even begin to think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. And so I, I, I asked this question as I pondered this text this week is, how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? I mean, the law and the prophets is shorthand for the entire Old Testament. And fulfillment is not necessarily the same as obeying. Jesus is saying that these things are going to come to pass, but there are going to be some aspects of the original law of the Torah that Jesus seems to double down on. We hear that today. There's some things that he ratchets up and takes even further. But there's going to be other things in his ministry that are original laws, and Jesus seems to almost throw them out. When he doesn't get upset about picking grain on the Sabbath or healing on the Sabbath, things like that, Jesus seems to be reorienting around those things. Seems to be saying that those Mosaic laws are not simply just given to Jesus' followers. Now, Jesus here is the wisdom teacher. He sits and delivers this sermon on the mount as a wise sage, and he is calling his disciples to a high standard. 
In fact, maybe even higher than the original law. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he says this. He says, using the Torah as a starting point, Jesus pushed the law in the same direction, further than any Pharisee had dared push it, further than any monk has dared live it. The Sermon on the Mount introduced a new moon in the moral universe that has exerted its own force of gravity ever since, end quote. So this new moon that Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount is clearly different. For the four Gospels, right, track the life and teachings of Jesus. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them telling the story of Jesus, each to a different audience, each from a little different vantage point. And so there's different themes that rise up in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke or in John. In Matthew, the audience is predominantly a Jewish audience, and Jesus is the great teacher in this. There's five different sections of teaching that kind of mark the book of Matthew. But even the principal players, when we look back to the Old Testament, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, they don't have the gravitational pull that Jesus does here in this teaching. Those heroes of the faith, the patriarchs of the faith, they are human examples. They are vessels for God to carry out God's work in the world. But from the beginning, something is different about this Jesus. Something in this first sermon in Matthew, essentially this kind of greatest hits of Jesus' teaching that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, is earth-shattering. That's why these are some of the most familiar words of anything Jesus said to us. They're also some of the most challenging words we've ever heard by a long shot. And so when we read these words where Jesus says, you've heard it said back in the law, but, but I say to you this, what I want to wonder along with people who have ever read this text is this, did Jesus really mean all of it? Because it's even harder than the law. And the law seemed super hard to follow all of the things. In fact, no one could do that. Jesus clearly knew that this was difficult and demanding. Verse 20, he seems to lay out an impossibly tall task. He says, I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness greater than the legal scholars, the scribes, or the Pharisees. These people worked the entirety of their life literally to do it right, to follow the law, to follow every single part of it. So these teachings of Jesus, these you have heard it said, but I say to you, these would have been offensive to the original hearers of the text. They may have heard them as legalistic impossibilities, even compared to what they were used to keeping. Yancey, in that same book, The Jesus I Never Knew, asked this question of the scripture. He says, does Jesus really expect me to give to every panhandler who crosses my path? Should I abandon all insistence on consumer rights, cancel my insurance policies and trust God for the future, discard my television to avoid temptation to lust? How can I possibly translate such ethical ideals into my everyday life? End quote. Clearly, we need some interpretation. This passage is not intended for us to get bogged down in even more rules than we had in Leviticus. No, Jesus is trying to show us something. 
He's trying to show us how to read and live out God's law as his disciples. There are some things that are necessary and vital in the Torah, Jesus is saying, and there are others that were there for a season. So let's look at these areas that Jesus addresses. Jesus begins, you have heard it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. Jesus starts, right, with the murder commandment. Pretty simple stuff we can all agree on. Like every society that's ever kind of worked in human history has followed this one, right? It's probably a bad idea to kill one another. And yet, what does Jesus do? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Oh, man. Jesus takes it right to the family level here. And you hear what he's saying, brother or sister, what Jesus is talking about is the Christian community, the community of disciples who are going to follow after him. And he's comparing burning with anger against someone in the community as committing murder. I mean, that seems really tough. If you've ever lived with a brother or sister, you've called him a fool before, I think. Maybe something worse, right? Maybe you added an adjective or an adverb before fool. However that works, right? The call from Jesus, though, is even more than just not getting angry. His call is to reconcile with the brother or sister, right? His call is for the person who's been wronged, where someone is angry with them, to actually go and try to make it right with the person. That's revolutionary stuff. Do nothing else until you make the relationship right, he says. Well, then Jesus keeps going, right? And he's going to keep pounding away here. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Once again, the crowd would have said, okay, the, the law of adultery. We, we should recognize the sacred bonds of the institution of marriage and how those are broken with any form of intimacy outside of marriage. It's another easy place to agree. We see the wreck and havoc that that causes anytime we read tabloids or see stories about what happens when intimacy outside of marriage is broken. But then, Jesus says, But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. What? Jesus shares this challenging word. He compares lustfully looking at a woman to committing adultery. If we follow Jesus to the letter here, I'm not sure we'd have any people that have any eyes or hands anymore walking around. Because he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Well, shoot, right? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut them off, right? Does he really mean that? And what do we do with that when Jesus is telling us that? But you see, in, in Hebrew culture, in that time around, they would have known that the practice of, of removing an eye or cutting off a hand was a was, was a punishment type of practice done. So it didn't sound quite as weird or extreme to them as it does to us. But Jesus is calling us to a higher standard, calling his disciples to honor one another beyond even just physically, 
beyond the physical bounds of breaking the marriage covenant. He's calling us to virtues like self-control that sound almost alien today in our culture. But Jesus is also in this undoing aspects of a male-dominated patriarchal society. Typically, in Jesus' time, a woman was always to blame for adultery. She was the seductress. She was the vile temptress. We hear this language today when victims of rape are blamed. But Jesus is saying the lust of the man is at fault here. He takes the blame off of the victim and puts it on the perpetrator. This is what caused the adultery and the divorce in the first place, Jesus is saying. He continues, Again, you've heard it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. So this part kind of seems like not a big deal to us. This is like the easy one. Well, I don't like make oaths and pledges too much, and we don't really have an oath culture very often. But our phrases, swear to God or cross my heart and hope to die, show that in our language we have understood oath and promise keeping in a serious way. And Jesus is saying that all our words all of our words should have integrity. He's saying we should always keep our words so we should never swear by anything. We shouldn't have to in his kingdom way because we're just always truth-telling. Then Jesus continues, and he makes it hard. He says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the law of retaliation. Sometimes this, this was the bulwark of Hammurabi's code uh, in ancient Babylon. So a law like this existed in every culture. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb. What, basically, it ensures just, uh, just punishment would happen, right? And that alone, that alone is a, is a difficult practice. But then here's what Jesus does, right? You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse to those who wish to borrow from you. Jesus here presents a revolutionary way to live He is telling his disciples to actively force someone to not acknowledge their humanity. There's much that has been written about what it meant to turn the other cheek, and what it would have meant was that for a Roman soldier who slapped you, then then that same soldier would have had to backhand you across the face, which was the ultimate, like, diss and, and sign of disrespect in that culture. How how can we live like Jesus is asking us to? How do we not desire that someone gets what's coming to them when they wrong us? And Jesus keeps going. You have heard it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, right, was one of the foundational tenets of Judaism. And, And what Jesus does here is he quotes the love your neighbor part, and then he adds this little part, which is, well, if we love our neighbor, that must mean we hate our enemies, right? This concept was well understood. Love your fellow Israelites and provide for them. And in many parts of the Old Testament, right, God promised to smite Israel's enemies. So what does Jesus advise? But I say to you, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is advising here for a different type of love entirely. Love of enemies. Love to the one who is persecuting you. And he goes on to explain, right, that it rains everywhere, right? That you can't just love the text, that you can't just love those who are good to you, but you have to love those who aren't good to you. Because the Heavenly Father shows love to all like that. This love and all of this section, but especially this idea about loving someone who is persecuting you, is only possible by the love of God living within us. So did Jesus really mean these things? Throughout church history, various theologians and and various church groups that become denominations have tried to figure out what Jesus meant. Like, did did he mean these things literally? How does he call us to live together? And most theologians, when they do this, are trying to explain away sections of Jesus' teaching to make it more palatable. And friends, Jesus is not interested in becoming palatable here. Jesus took holiness very seriously, and he wanted his followers to live within the way, within the realm of God's kingdom. But Jesus is showing what God's intention for creation was all along. In this teaching and in his life and witness, Jesus is showing what God's intention for creation is all along. It seems like Jesus was saying that from the beginning, the law had concessions built in. In other words, God's intention was never for divorce, but a law had to be given by Moses about divorce. God's original intention for creation lines up with how Jesus teaches and lives. So Jesus can double down on some of these commands that were given in the Torah. They were that important. And at other times in ministry, he will seemingly ignore or defy parts of the law. I believe what Jesus is trying to do here is get to the heart of the law and the prophets, get to the heart of the Old Testament. And the point is that we have a heart issue, each one of us, that needs to be resolved. Our behaviors, like the anger that rises up within us, the desire for retaliation to see someone pay for what they have done, the lust that rises up within us, that is the heart of what Jesus wants to address. And we can only live like this by the power of the spirit of Jesus living within us. And by ourselves, trying to do any of this, let alone trying to do, just just follow the laws of the Ten Commandments or the Torah, we will not measure up. And Jesus knows that we are not going to be able to live this entire law. His Sermon on the Mount, after all, is bracketed by grace. Right before this section, when he begins the Beatitudes, right, he's going to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And on and on and on. So he begins with grace. Grace to the lowly. And right after this section, Jesus' disciples are going to say, teach us to pray. And Jesus is going to give the Lord's Prayer. Included is forgive us our trespasses, presuming that we're going to screw up, right? And lead us not into temptation, right? But deliver us from the evil. Presuming that that we are going to encounter injustice, that we are going to encounter places where where, where we are not measuring up. 
Philip Yancey said it this way in the Jesus I Never Knew. He says, grace is for the desperate, the needy, the broken, those who cannot make it on their own. Grace is for all of us. For years I have thought of the Sermon on the Mount as a blueprint for human behavior that no one could possibly follow. Reading it again, I found that Jesus gave these words not to cumber us, but to tell us what God is like. If the Sermon on the Mount, if these texts and teachings from Jesus, rather than just giving us a new set of rules to follow, an even harder one, what if it's Jesus showing us what God is like? That God is like the one who loves us when we have run far away from God's love. That God's love is like the one who offers reconciliation and peace to us, running towards us to make the reconciliation when our anger has made violence and ugliness in the relationship. Jesus is describing God's character. His whole ministry is going to exemplify this character of what life is like in God's kingdom, and he invites us to live within God's kingdom way as well. And with God's help, with God's help, it's worth a try. In the Episcopalian baptismal liturgy, in the Book of Common Prayer, which our liturgies follow and track a great deal, after they have said the creed in their baptismal liturgy, they ask the candidate for baptism or the sponsors of the parents, the parents who are sponsoring a baby for baptism, they ask them these questions. And every time they respond, I will with God's help. I really like those words, I will with God's help. And so I'm going to ask you these questions of the faith this morning. And I want you to hear in them the resonance of what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And you might quietly say to yourself, or even say that aloud at the end of each question, I will with God's help. Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers? I will with God's help. Will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent? and return to the Lord, I will, with God's help. Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? I will, with God's help. Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will, with God's help. Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? I will, with God's help. Friends, may it be so. Amen.